Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Michael Cotis talks about the phenomenon of megafires, forest fires that burn over 100,000 acres, and why the number of these fires is increasing every year. In the 1980s, fires burned an average of 2 million acres per year. Today the average is 8 million, and growing. Scientists believe that we could see years with 20 million acres burned, an area larger than the size of Ireland. Michael Cotis is the Deputy Director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder. He is also an award-winning photojournalist and reporter. We spoke about his new book, Megafire, the week after the outbreak of massive fires in Northern California. Those fires killed 42 people, consumed 8,400 homes, and led to $1 billion in damages. Michael Cotis, thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me on. I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like to actually be in a wildfire. So the, the, there are different ways of being in a wildfire. Um, you know, the, at its most basic level, when it's just you witnessing fire in the forest, it's kind of like being in other weather phenomenon, you know, very intense weather phenomenon in that you are seeing this incredibly powerful force that... Um, You may understand a little bit, but most of it is still uh, very mysterious and uh, can transform a landscape incredibly quickly Um, and is also uh, beautiful in in its awesome way and leaves something behind um, that uh, most of our society sees as destruction, but is also quite beautiful. You know, it's a it's a regenerative force in the landscapes where it you know where where there's a fire cycle, which is most vegetated landscapes. Um, then there's the level of being involved in a wildfire where you're um, in the middle of a response to a wildfire, and that is um, awesome in its own way, but chaotic 
um, very difficult to kind of understand all the players and what's going on. So yeah, b- being in the middle of a response to a wildfire, I mean, you can be there with just a handful of people who are you know going to be able to you know round this thing up and deal with it very quickly. And you know, it's it's kind of uh, just work a day wildland firefighting. Or you can be there with um, thousands of people, helicopters, airplanes, uh, uh, an elaborate fire camp full of all kinds of services for the firefighters. And that is, uh, as opposed to feeling like you're in the middle of a weather phenomenon, that feels more like you're in the middle of a military operation. Mm. Um, It's complicated with a lot of different players, and it's hard to keep track of all of them. Uh, Lots of different jurisdictions that have to be brought together and coordinated, you know, the local firefighters, uh, often firefighters from the state where you're at, the federal uh, firefighters. And uh, yeah, then you're really uh, very often not seeing nearly as much flame and smoke and instead seeing, you know, lots of people in green pants and yellow shirts moving in all kinds of different directions and bulldozers and trucks and, and helicopters moving around. And that operation is often so engrossing and elaborate that you don't even look for the smoke and the flames because you're just watching the human reaction to the smoke and the flames. I it, I get this feeling watching TV uh, of fires as this kind of, you know, you're always seeing it from 20,000 feet or maybe not that high, but, but you know, from you know, the perspective of a helicopter or from a camera that's that's taking um, its shots from far away. And then reading your book, you realize, you know, so much of what you talk about is a kind of uh, on-the-ground view of it. And I almost get this feeling of, like, the fog of war, uh, where, you know, seeing it close up, it's it's got to smell different, it's, it probably sounds different, um, and it's just so different from what most of us understand when we, you know, watch the news or watch a YouTube video of a fire. Yeah, you know, it does, the the sensory um, uh, information is is very different when you're on the ground and when you're close to it, and also very different depending on on where you are at, um, you know, as far as, you know, what part of the country or or what country you're in, you know, because wildfire is common in most countries. So, you know, different types of vegetation smell differently and burn differently. And, you know, really experienced wildland firefighters can look from, you know, even a distance and, and, you know, figure out that, oh, wow, that's... um, that's some ponderosa that's burning or that's more of a mixed conifer forest that's burning or Indian juniper hmm. forest that's burning. And, you know, the smells uh, both while the fire is burning there and then afterwards are often different depending on um, the geography that you're in. Um, and fires burn differently and behave differently. They also, um, uh, you know, are a reflection of the condition of, of the various forests that they're in. For instance, here in the Front Range of Colorado, it was pretty common in a lot of our lower elevation ponderosa pine forests for uh, fires to burn through them, you know, every 10 years or even more frequently than that. But they they burn pretty low on the ground and pretty mellow. In fact, you can, you know, usually just walk by these fires. They're, uh, you know, burning in grass and scrub and things on the ground and burning maybe low branches off the trees, but not crowning into the trees and turning into this huge, fast, very dangerous crown fire. 
And then as uh, we put out fires for about a century, a lot of those forests closed up and they started to have less frequent but far more intense fires that climbed from the ground into the treetops and then raced through the treetops as this huge crown fire. So, you know, when you're on the ground with firefighters, they can kind of look at it and say, oh, wow, this is a forest where we've put out too many fires. We've excluded fire for too long and the fire's behaving differently because of that in this forest. Or here's a forest where, you know, we've uh, we've had prescribed burns and thinning projects and this fire's behaving much as fires have historically in this forest. So there's a lot of uh, uh, geographic specificity, so to speak, about how fires behave, how they smell, what the flames look like, and so forth. We're fighting fires to protect houses, to protect forests, while simultaneously making it more likely that when these fires uh, break out again, they're going to be that much worse. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's it's an interesting um, concept. And it's interesting in that I write about in my book how uh, for about a century, the U.S. had uh, pretty much a zero tolerance policy towards natural wildfire. And for a good deal of that time, we had what was called the out by 10 a.m. policy, which was uh, that uh, any wildfire that was sighted in the United States was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the next morning. And if it wasn't extinguished by that morning, then it was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. in the morning after that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, getting back to these ponderosa pine forests that I mentioned, which are one good example of, of the effect that that had, um, you know, if you have a forest that, say, naturally would have fire burn through it every 10 years, and you put out every fire in that forest for a century, then it's pretty simple math to figure out you're going to have 10 times more fuel in that forest because the, you know, none of the stuff that that uh, regular fire cycle would have removed is gone. It's all built up. And so uh, once you do get a fire in that forest that you can't control or that gets away, it's got way more fuel. It behaves differently. The structure of the forest has probably changed in that um, species that were... Uh, uh, less tolerant of uh, open meadows and lots of sun, but like a lot of shade, will have moved in, um, you know, as the forest canopy closed up. And uh, you end up with a forest that um, may have had uh, 50 to 100 trees on an acre, having as many as 1,000 trees on an acre, you know, kind of standing shoulder to shoulder. I kind of think of them as slums of trees because pests like... Uh, Beetle infestations can move through mm -hmm. them more easily. Um, there, all, all the trees in this forest are fighting for sunlight and nutrients and water, and uh, they're much more prone to being unhealthy. They're much more prone to burning, and uh, they're also the forest overall is more likely to have those really serious crown fires um, that can um, be, you know, incredibly destructive to a forest that normally would have had these low intensity fires burn through them that are actually good for the health of the forest and don't really kill that many of the big trees. So re reading this, when you were talking about how much fuel had built up within these uh, forests based upon, you know, essentially uh, forest service policies, I thought, oh, okay, so then this is where we introduce the controlled burn. But then you write a lot about how controlled burns aren't always so controlled. The, the no, lower northern fork fire 
which you which you talk a lot about, was uh, an example of a fire that slopped over. Could you talk a little about that? Sure. So, yeah, the Lower North Fork Fire in Jefferson County, Colorado, was a Colorado State Forest Service prescribed burn and seemed to have gone pretty well um, and actually had been extinguished. And they were in the final days of mop up, you know, which is basically just making sure every last uh, ember has been soaked and, and put out. And it was probably about four days after the burn had actually been held that we had red flag weather come on to Colorado. So the temperatures got much higher than they were. The humidity dropped and really strong winds picked up. And uh, those uh, conditions caused that fire to reignite, burn out of the area that uh, the Forest Service had intended to have the burn in. And it burned into a neighborhood of homes and destroyed uh, a number of the homes in the neighborhood and killed three of the people that lived there, all of whom had been told that um, don't worry about the smoke that you're smelling in the flames. It's just a prescribed burn. And uh, you know you don't have to evacuate. So really, uh, a, a tragic, uh, you know, pardon the, the pun, backfire of uh, you know this prescribed burn. It was uh, a very difficult year for prescribed burns in Colorado. This was 2012, and we had a much lower snowpack than we normally do, and conditions were incredibly warm in March when this burn was held. You know, overall, it was uh, basically like uh, May or late May weather that we were getting in March, and uh, those conditions make it much harder to have prescribed burns. Um, but a lot of other things go wrong with these fires, and with that one in particular, you know, the prescribed burn itself, you know, reignited and, and uh, was uh, almost impossible to contain. Um, but also the people responding to the uh, prescribed burn or to the wildfire that it turned into um, really were handicapped in how they could deal with it. Uh, you know, it's a problem that we have in a lot of areas like this, um, you know, uh, rural areas or areas that are near, you know, cities and population centers, but, um, you know, uh, far enough outside of them to feel as though they're still in the mountains. Do you think we're um, reaching a point kind of like uh, too big to fail with uh, finances where our forests are so packed with fuel that they're too big to burn? Um, or do you feel like these controlled burns are important and possible? You just have to find exactly the right conditions to do it. Yeah, that's that's a great question and uh, uh, an issue that people you know argue about a lot. But I, uh, I think the, the basic reality here is that these forests are going to burn um, one way or another. And so trying to have fires in them that foresters and firefighters set at times of year when they feel like they'll be able to control them, perhaps there's snow on the ground, the temperatures are cooler, the, the humidity is higher, is probably a, a, a better situation to find yourself in than just waiting for uh, the natural wildfire to start and dealing with a big wildfire at a time of year when the conditions may not be that favorable for dealing with the fire. You know, it's probably going to be summer. The temperatures are going to be much hotter. The fuels are going to be a lot drier. And so uh, that inevitable wildfire is probably going to behave even worse than a prescribed burn, even one that is problematic behaves. You were talking about like these burns also affect the watershed. How do people make these decisions when, you know, you're looking at a controlled burn that might 
really reduce water quality, right? Um, yeah, it, you know, again, it's a really difficult balancing act because that fire we were talking about before, the Lower North Fork fire, the prescribed burn was set on behalf of the Denver water. Mm. Basically, mm -hmm. they're trying to have burns back in these forests that are uh, low intensity, similar to the historic fires that burn through these forests, because that kind of fire is actually good for the watershed. You know, watershed's going to be able to filter water, water's mm -hmm. going to move through that area a little more effectively. And you're also going to prevent the kind of, uh, you know, mega fire like we saw with the Hayman fire um, in Colorado back in 2002 that has incredibly negative impacts on watersheds. Uh, you know, one of these really hot, big fires can make soils hydrophobic so that water uh, does not soak into these soils at all. And you have a big rainstorm, it just runs down the mountainside um, on this kind of glassy soil hmm. and then picks up anything that's in its way. So, you know, uh, you end up seeing these debris flows like we see here in, in Colorado and we've seen in, in California where boulders, cars, entire houses will be washed away by these mudslide debris flows after fires. Even if you don't see that kind of, you know, epic uh, physical process after the fire when, when a rainstorm comes into the burned area, um, you still have the problem with all kinds of both natural and human chemicals that are released by the fire and built up in the soils. So, uh, you know, we have reservoirs here that still have to be cleaned out and, and it costs us millions of dollars in Colorado to clean these um, chemicals, you know, arsenic and, and cadmium out of uh, the, the mud and water in our reservoirs um, from a fire that is, you know, uh, 15 years ago. That's a big consideration for our, our wildfire policies, particularly in areas like, say, the Front Range of the Rocky Mountains, which is near Denver and Colorado Springs and Boulder, where uh, we're very dependent on the watersheds in these mountains for uh, water for you know, human consumption, agriculture, recreation. Um, and they, they can be profoundly impacted by uh, severe wildfires. But the other, the other side of that is, um, and, and uh, you know, another issue that I try to get into in the book is the fact that we had a century where we saw wildfire as this horrible thing. It was this beast that we thought we could uh, eradicate from our forests if we just worked hard enough at it. And then we recognized that, uh, no, fire is as natural to most of our landscapes as rain is mm -hmm. we probably don't want as much of it as rain but you know most of our forests require a certain amount of fire to be healthy and then we saw that oh putting out fires for a century this was really bad for all of our forests and all of them need to have fire reintroduced to them but it really depends on the forest and the geography of where you are at. So, you know, I've, I've mentioned the Ponderosa Pine Forest that had this very uh, frequent cycle of fire, you know, sometimes, you know, more often than every 10 years. And that was basically nature's gardening crew that came in and mm -hmm. removed completely vegetation and small trees and such. And then you get up to the forest that you mentioned uh, earlier, the Lodgepole Pine Forest. Well, Lodgepole Pine Forest only have natural fire burn through them every 100 to 300 years. Huh. So our century of putting out wildfires probably didn't affect the structure of that forest as much, if at all. And this is a forest that 
has evolved for high severity fires. You know, they have what uh, um, foresters call um, stand uh, replacing fires. Mm-hmm. So this is a forest that naturally creates mountainsides of wildfire and fires that basically go through and remove all the trees, kill everything in that forest. Mm-hmm. And that's the natural fire cycle there. And so when you get into a lodgepole pine forest, one way you, you recognize that is that all the trees are basically the same size and the same age because they are uh, replaced by a fire or sometimes a beetle infestation, you know, every, you know, century or two. And so reintroducing fire into those forests doesn't make any sense. You're just taking a huge risk of setting that entire forest on fire and and creating one of these stand-replacing events that you may not want. And uh, you're not really helping the health of that forest to reintroduce fire into it. And so uh, I found myself uh, in in reporting uh, my book and in the work I'd done covering wildfire prior to doing the book that I had been um, a subscriber to two different polarized mythologies. <laughs> the, the Smoky Bear story that, you know, fire is bad and we have to stop it. And then I started to buy into, you know, what a lot of forest firefighters were saying back in the 90s and, and, and the early 2000s that, oh, no, we've totally messed up our forests by putting out all these fires. We have to reintroduce fire into all of our forests. And the reality is actually in between the two. Um, in, in some places, yeah, we've definitely uh, made our forests less healthy by removing fire. But in some of our forests, um, they are going to burn in big, bad fires because that's what they've evolved for. You know, rather than thinking in terms of we can make this forest safer and healthier by reintroducing fire into it, we should probably think in terms of having a relationship with that forest that recognizes that eventually this forest is going to burn. And when it does, it is going to be big and bad. And we don't want houses here or infrastructure in this forest uh, that, you know, we're really dependent on because eventually everything on this mountainside is going to burn and, and everything is going to be reduced to ash. So do you think there is a best practices for U.S. forest policy or is it kind of a zero-sum game where you've got to choose uh, who loses in a, you know, a particular forest? Well, we're definitely going to have winners and losers in this, but we can choose how we want fire to be a part of a lot of our forests. So I do think that there are a lot of best practices that we could be participating in that we're not participating in. Um, and the first is, you know, we've kind of convinced the public in the U.S. and particularly in the West that wildfire is something that um, emergency responders are here to deal with for you and foresters are here to deal with for you. And so you can build your house wherever you want in, in as dangerous a landscape as uh, you find beautiful. And uh, we have professionals that will come out and deal with this hazard for you. And I think that's um, both um, naive on the part of residents of mountain forests. And I also think it's, it's profoundly unfair. You know, in a sense, what we're doing is subsidizing lifestyles in dangerous forests with the lives of young men and women. Mm-hmm. 
So I think, you know, what we're starting to see, particularly after some of the mass fatality events that we've seen and those involving firefighters, is less of a willingness to do that on the part of um, the leaders of our responses to these these incidents and, and wildfires and, and, and other types of natural disasters as well. So I think that's one thing is to, you know, kind of quit convincing the public at large that, you know, we've got this army of wildland firefighters that will come and protect your property because we're not going to be able to do that. And we're going to, um, you know, increasingly have loss of life in, in response to that, both of residents who don't really realize how dangerous the landscape they live in might be and uh, firefighters who, um, you know, particularly wildland firefighters who are not trained or equipped for structure protection, but find it's much harder to step back from burning homes than it is from burning trees. Hmm. So that's one aspect of it. When when we get back to the idea of reintroducing fire into our forests that need it and need it to be healthy, I think um, it's been challenging to do that, both because of um, accidents and uh and prescribed burns that go wrong you know another one that i write about uh quite a bit in the book is uh, the los conscious fire in 2000 Mm -hmm. in new mexico which was uh, a prescribed burn set by the u.s government with you know really just a handful of firefighters that turned into the most expensive wildfire in the nation's history to that date and destroyed you know hundreds of homes in los alamos Mm -hmm. and also threatened the nuclear laboratory there um so um, there's good reasons to be wary of prescribed burns. But if you're living in a forest where there's a natural fire cycle, I think we're going to have to be more accepting of the fact that we're going to have fire in that forest. And it's preferable to try to have those fires at a time when we might be able to manage them and deal with them than waiting for the inevitable wildfire that uh, could be coming at a time of year and in conditions where we have no chance of managing them. Given that we have to manage them and that we should see controlled burns as a part of best practices. Can you talk a little bit about the Yarnell Hill fire and some of the lessons that you gleaned from that about how to how to fight one of these fires? Yeah, so um, that's a, a, a really great example of everything I was just talking about because, you know, the Granite Mountain hotshots, who uh, 19 of them died um, in the Yarnell Hill fire, um, the great mystery about that incident is why they moved from a safety zone in the black. And they, so they were in an area that a wildland firefighters call the black, which means it's an mm-hmm. area that's already been burnt by the fire. And so most of the fuel is gone and it's almost impossible for the fire to come back there. So, you know, they were in a place where they were safe from this fire on, on a, a high hilltop from which they could see the fire exploding and moving into the town of Yarnell. And nobody really knows for sure why they would move from a safety area into a canyon that was so choked with chaparral that you know almost any firefighter would recognize it as a death trap. Mm-hmm. And the only real explanation is that the canyon they were trapped in was the shortest way for them to get to um, a ranch, which was also another safety zone for them, where they would be able to get into town and help protect some structures or or maybe help protect this town. Mm -hmm. And again, 
that's not really a wildland firefighter's job to protect towns and structures. They're supposed to be working on the fire in, in, in the forest, in the vegetated landscape. And in the case of the Arnell Hill Fire, as um, you know, I don't mean for it to sound cruel, but this was a town where some of the residents had done a bit to protect their homes from wildfire, but most had not. When the fire moved into Yarnell, it moved exponentially faster than the firefighters anticipated that it would. I believe they had uh, spread out a series of trigger points, uh, uh, geographic markers, where if the fire reached this, we evacuate the town. Uh, you know, if the fire reaches this further point into the town, we have the firefighters pull back to one side of the highway. And if it reaches this third trigger point, it's everybody out of town. The town's, you know, going down. And it uh, the fire crossed these trigger points that I think they planned on uh, taking a couple of hours for the fire to cross, I think in a matter of about 15 minutes. Heavy chaparral um, fuel, which is a very oily uh, type of you know manzanita and and like gamble oak and, and just really flammable fuels and so the idea that uh, you know these uh, wildland firefighters perish trying to get to a town to save a town that had done very little to protect itself from the hazard um, struck a lot of people as um, incredibly unfair for the firefighters, for anybody to have this expectation that firefighters are going to come in and stop this fire from destroying this town. And also the idea that, you know, should we be even expecting that? If you drive through and you can see a town is largely indefensible from wildfire, should we have firefighters there at all taking that kind of a risk? Hmm. Um, there, there was a bigger picture aspect of what happened to the Granite Mountain hotshots that I explored in my book that I don't think many people were talking about at the time, which was the the new film that is out about this disaster, uh, the Hollywood movie with Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges, uh-huh. uh, talks a bit about it, that this was of about 110 hotshot crews in the country at the time. This was the only hotshot crew in the U.S. ever to be part of a municipal fire department. So it was part of the Prescott um, Arizona Fire Department, which is the oldest fire department in Arizona. And they really were a clever solution that the wildland fire chief and uh, some other firefighters in the department with a lot of uh, uh, wildfire experience created to solve a really horrible problem for the town of Prescott, Arizona, which had been named by um, one um, company, an insurance, uh, you know, a group of insurance analysts, as one of the nine most likely cities in the country to be burned over by a wildfire. Oh, God. And, uh, you know, it's a very uh, fire-threatened community because it's a mix of ponderosa pine and chaparral around uh, the city. They had nearly had uh, a couple of major wildfires burn into the city and and turn into urban conflagrations. And uh, by having a hotshot crew on their fire department, they effectively had uh, an elite team of wildland firefighters to clear fuels around the city during the winter. If they were home and not on assignment elsewhere, they uh, had you know some very fit, very highly trained wildland firefighters to deal with that hazard. But it was basically cost neutral for the city mm-hmm. um, because the hotshots were sent around the country to fight other wildfires. And when they were doing that, the federal government paid 
the city back for their services. Mm -hmm. And that basically paid for Prescott to have these elite firefighters. And at the time that they created this, it seemed like this is a great, clever solution to this horrible problem that Prescott has. You know, we're going to have some really high-end wildland firefighters that can do work for us year-round and reduce the threat to our city. And because they are um, in great demand elsewhere in the country to fight these other wildfires, it's not going to cost us very much. Mm -hmm. And then sadly, um, you know, the Yarnell Hill disaster happened and uh, that all backfired on the creators of the crew. And not only did they not recreate uh, a hotshot crew for the city, they, they couldn't because their insurance carrier said they would not insure the city if they had a hotshot crew. They ended up dismantling their entire wildland division. So Prescott is now has less protection against wildfire than it did prior to the creation of the hotshots. So they're kind of in a worse position now than they were when they started. Do you think that having a hotshot crew as part of the municipal firefighting crew made the people of Yarnell more complacent about preparing their houses? In other words, is there a kind of uh, downside to uh, or a false security to some of this? I think there's a variety of downsides in false security like that. I can't say as to whether the, the, the people in Yarnell, which is a town, you know, about a 30-minute drive away from Prescott, felt that way. But I think that Yarnell is, is reflective of many communities in the West that are uh, somewhat complacent about the hazard they, they face and, and the threats to their communities because we have wildland firefighters and we, we put so much effort into fighting fires and you know we have planes in the air dropping this bright red retardant all over the country and helicopters in this almost militaristic uh, response to wildfires that i think has made many communities um, somewhat complacent and and given them the feeling that you know i'm not too worried about wildfire because we've got an army of folks that will come out and deal with that if i have you know if i have a wildfire incident break out near my home I think that there was another problem um, that people didn't really consider with um, the Granite Mountain hotshots being part of a municipal fire department that, that people have considered since then, which was because they were part of a municipal fire department, uh, a number of the crew members graduated onto the structure firefighting part of that department. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that meant that there was kind of this cross-pollination. Yeah. Yeah, you know, structure firefighting and wildland firefighting. And also, you know, you may have had some members of the crew. In fact, the, the this feature film talks about it a little bit who you know, wanted to uh, show their metal fighting structure fires or pitching in to help protect structures feeling as though this makes it more likely that I'll be able to graduate to the structure firefighting side of the fire department, which, you know, is a full-time gig, you know, kind of a lifetime gig with um, benefits and a variety of other things that, you know, would have been very desirable for a lot of the guys on the crew, uh, which was made up uh, of far more family men than most hotshot crews were. You know, most of them um, had, or a lot of them had kids, you know, uh, some had pretty big families, you know, wives, etc. And, um, you know, you, it, it would be pretty natural for them to think, boy, this hot shotting thing is great marching into the woods with axes and chainsaws, but eventually my knees are going to give out. And what am I going to do then? Yeah. 
I think a lot of people are, are considering, you know, that um, that relationship of having a wildland fire crew that's part of a municipal fire crew um, has some some drawbacks to it that that folks may not have considered at the time. That's a really interesting uh, interesting point. Cl- clearly, if you uh, if you had a lot of experience and investment in in uh, structure firefighting, then uh, it would be hard to get that out of your blood if you're watching a fire encroach upon your town. Yeah, you know, and I make the point, um, you know, I think I've even made it in this podcast, that, so firefighters talk about the bias toward action. You know, that, you know, you're with a crew of guys, you see stuff being damaged, you see bad things happening to a community or to houses, and you naturally want to engage and do what you can. And often that bias towards action um, leads you to jump in and start working before you've considered everything that can go Mm -hmm. wrong. Are there power lines that could come down while I'm working on this fire on, you know, that's, that's coming on this house? Are there propane tanks? Are there vehicles filled with gasoline here? It's much more difficult to step back from burning homes, particularly in a community as close to where these firefighters lived yeah. as Yarnell was, where they're likely to actually know some of the people that live, live in that community, um, than it is to step back from a bunch of burning trees and just say, hey, this forest is going up and I, I got nothing um, invested in this. It's We should retreat. Yeah. This, this seems a little too dangerous. But if it's houses and maybe you know people that own those houses, harder to do that. So what is your impression of the California fires? I mean, it's I'm reading your book and I'm watching the news and uh, it's incredible. What do you think? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things with the California fires. And I write in the first pages of my book about my brother who, whose cabin uh, where he lived burned in the Valley Fire a, a couple years ago in Lake County, California. And he was actually evacuated for this latest round of fires as well. Um, and, you know, that's really common if you're living in Northern California, some places of Southern California, here in Colorado, Arizona, that, uh, you know, you're, you're getting, it's, it's, it's almost uh, routine for you to be evacuated for wildfires. And there's one uh, person I spoke with who lost her home twice in a year. God. Um, to uh, you know, so two different times. There are a couple of things that that I, I think are very interesting with the the California wildfires, and the the first initial thing that's kind of counterintuitive was one of the things that drove this fire was that the drought got eased to some degree in California this year, um, and most people would think, oh well, if the the drought is uh, a little uh, less severe. That's got to make the fires um, less likely to burn. That's that's going to make that's going to reduce our fire threat. And the reality is that the drought uh, getting broken um, increased the fire threat in Northern California exponentially. Um, and what happens is, if you have very arid conditions, and particularly if you're in a place that's commonly fairly arid, and you get a pulse of moisture like they got in California, you know, they had a very wet winter and spring, then that leads to what uh, firefighters call a big green mm-hmm. of uh, what's, what are known as one-hour fuels, very fine fuels like grasses and, and, uh, and shrubs and scrub. Uh-huh. And then if that landscape returns to arid conditions, then you've got five or ten times more fuel than you naturally would have in that area. 
Um, and that's what happened in, in Northern California. They had a huge amount of grass and, and shrubs and scrub that grew up because of this pulse of moisture and then things got dry again. And the reason that firefighters call these fuels one hour fuels is because it only takes an hour of dry conditions to cure those fuels to the point that they'll burn. Wow. So it only took you know an hour of really extreme drought to take all of that fuel and make it ready to burn. And that uh, that's led California, you know, and particularly Northern California, has had exponentially more fire overall this year than they did a year ago when the drought was still going pretty strong. So that's one of the drivers that 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 hit this fire. The other thing were you know really strong Diablo winds. Uh-huh. So they're kind of like the Santa Ana winds that are now occurring in Southern California, um, which can really drive uh, bad fires. And then the other thing is, you know, that we saw with this one that I think was uh, you know something that that uh, we we've seen a few times. We've seen it here in Colorado. Um, a couple of times in just the last few years that um, uh, emergency responders have been predicting is, you know, the conversion of a wildfire into an urban firestorm, which is what happened in Santa Rosa. And what what occurs is uh, you get that Diablo wind behind all of those fine fuels that have exploded with fire and, you know, a forest that's very dry and, and burning really intensely. And they can create what are called ember attacks, which basically are just uh, hundreds of thousands of firebrands, you know, some of them the size of your fingernail and some as big as your head that are uh, on fire and being launched ahead of the fire front a mile, two miles, three miles. So those can land in the center of a, of a community like Santa Rosa, which is why we saw some of these neighborhoods deep inside the city burning, um, is because they're, they're having all of these firebrands and this ember attack launch all through the community, and they're incredibly difficult to deal with because you don't know which of those firebrands are going to start fires. It's not like it's moving like we usually see in the movies with this crown fire coming and house is ignited because it's closest to the flames. Often it's random homes deep inside the community that are having a firebrand land in the needles in their gutters or go into a vent in the home or lodge under a deck and ignite a home on this block and maybe a couple homes on this block over here. Um, and so that's th- those are really, really difficult for firefighters and emergency responders to deal with. That was something that struck me with some of the flyover footage of these neighborhoods was I wasn't seeing lots of um, forests surrounding these neighborhoods. It seemed like a lot of them were quite, you know, suburban with not a lot of, you know, huge pines uh, surrounding them. Um, but when you talk about these winds and the, uh, the firebrands that are flying through the neighborhood, uh, and, and crossing six lane highways, I think sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, that kind of surprised me while I was working on the book, you know, some research that came out and, you know, first, uh, read about it dealing with the four mile Canyon fire here outside of Boulder in 2010. And, uh, you know, that was the first of, 
four fires in four years in Colorado that broke the most destructive fire record. So it was really a, a broken record for us here, um, or a skipping record of broken records here in Colorado. <laughs> um, and uh, the the study of the Four Mile Canyon fire and the about 170 homes that burned in that was that about 80% of the homes were not ignited by those big, dramatic crown fires. They were burned down by ground fires. So fire huh. that just moved through grass to a home or uh, embers that lodged in some unusual place in a house and then ignited the house sometimes hours after the fire front had passed when you would think mm-hmm. that the, the risk and the hazard is over. And, you know, the uh, uh, fire scientists are increasingly finding that it is those insidious little firebrands and and embers or a little pool of flame that you wouldn't even notice that is igniting these homes rather than the the tsunami of flame that we associate with the crown fires Hmm. that we think are destroying these communities. And that's one reason that the destruction is so random. Um, and another aspect of this um, that, that you kind of allude to is that in a lot of these places, you are dealing with a population that are living in suburbia or sometimes even close to the center of a city that really don't recognize that they face a wildfire threat. Um, they don't mm-hmm. see that they're in this wildland urban interface that we talk about where development abuts um, uh, forests because What's actually carrying the fire from house to house, if, it, if the ha- fire is moving from house to house, it's not a natural forest. It's usually the landscaping that they've planted. It's trees that they planted in their yard or a cedar rail fence that they've got surrounding their house or their deck rather than you know a big national forest with a, a crown fire moving through it so hmm. um they're you know uh, quite surprised to see the fire move the way that it does and, and another thing that can happen with these fires when they get into a community like this is they choose you know, the fire will choose the most effective fuel and very often that's the house and the structures rather than the, the forests. And so one thing that um, that I've seen a little bit of in California from uh, the, the photographs that I've looked at, and I've seen uh, particularly at the Waldo Canyon fire here in Colorado that burned into the city of Colorado Springs, is um, I actually walked through a yard of a house that was, uh, com- that was destroyed and the flowers were still blooming in the flower garden and the trees around the house were still green with needles with very little damage to the trees. Wow. But the house is just rubble and ash fallen into the foundation because the fire is now just saying, hey, these houses are much better fuel than the trees. I'm just going to go house to house. So, Michael, um, this is not your first extreme environment. Uh, when you worked at the Hartford Current in 2004, you we're on an Everest expedition. I also know that you have extensive experience rock climbing. I'm wondering, just personally speaking, do you view these kind of as a piece, uh, these different extreme places, or are they all entirely unique in their own thing and in your in your mind? Um, the, the, there are ways in which they're a piece, and there are ways in which they're unique. There's, uh, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, working in, in newspapers. We talked a lot about adventure journalism. And the odd thing to me is that the pure adventure writing and adventure stories 
are rarely very interesting to me. You know, if it's uh-huh. just the adrenaline rich storytelling and there's no bigger point to it, I, I have trouble sticking with it. And what I began to see as adventure journalism, you know, uh, the time I spent in the Himalaya or rock climbing or, you know, sea kayaking around Long Island Sound or any number of other things is it's a great way to sugarcoat stories that you feel people should be paying attention to. But because there's so much more exciting content out there for them to, to pay attention to, um, they don't. And so, you know, for instance, you know, I, I had one story where I sea kayaked, I circumnavigated Long Island Sound in a sea kayak over a period of about five weeks. And, you know, the stories I wanted to do were about water quality and about how sprawl and lawns were leading to this dead zone in Long Island Sound and why had the lobster stocks collapsed and what's the threat of all these sewage spills out of New York City to a, water, a body of water that we're all very dependent on. And I knew most of the readers I wanted to reach were not going to read those stories, but a lot of them would pick up the newspaper to see if I'd managed to drown myself. <laughs> and if you track the story just right, then suddenly you've got them paying attention to an environmental issue. Yeah, And that was one of the things that I really endeavored to do with, with the latest book was I wanted it to be adrenaline-rich uh, storytelling, and I wanted to be... Uh, I wanted to produce something that um, that appropriately honored the people that work on wildfires, um, firefighters, certainly, but also the scientists and the land managers and the people who are trying to prevent these disasters. But I also wanted the public to kind of uh, pay attention to the science and the policy that's causing um, these problems and might uh, help us solve them. Um, and, you know, uh, telling the narrative story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and a number of these other fire incidents was a way to get people to engage with some storytelling that's that's exciting mm-hmm. and, then you know, lead them into this is why this is happening or this is what science is telling us right now or this is what you can expect for the place where you live and why you should care about it. Michael Cotis, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at time to eat the dogs. that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at timetoeatthedogs.com. Time to eat the dogs.